The following sermon is by Dr. Josh Scally, pastor of Emanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. Please visit us at 2100 Noble Road in Raleigh or on the web at ebcraleigh.com. And now, here's Pastor Josh. Uh, We do continue in Exodus today, and we're going to pick up in chapter 24. Here's what I've been praying about all week, is that today's passage is so incredible and so breathtaking, and yet potentially so confusing, that we may not see why it's so important. In 1932, B.B. Warfield, the Princeton theologian, said this, The Old Testament is like a chamber richly furnished, but dimly lighted. And then in the New Testament, when the light of the world comes, when Christ comes, the light illuminates what was already there so you can understand it more perceptively. So this morning in Exodus 24, we're going to see things that seem strange and archaic and maybe even weird. But these are the furnishings through which the light has come on. And if you understand the furnishings, you'll really appreciate what the light has done. Let me kind of walk us back to where we are in the Bible I don't want to give too much information and give a data dump this morning, but we do need the cliff notes at least to know what's happening in Exodus 24. In Genesis, don't worry, I won't do the whole book, but in Genesis, God creates humanity, says everything he's made is very good, but then humanity, tempted by the devil, starts to assume that God maybe isn't as good as he said he is, and maybe his commands are not as good as God says they are. And so man rejects God, rejects his commandments, and is separated from him through what the Bible calls sin. The penalty for sin, we read in Genesis 3, is death, to be separated from God, both in this life and in the life to come. And yet God, in marvelous grace, sacrifices animals in Genesis 3 and covers Adam and Eve with these animals. Fast forward to Genesis 15. There we find God continuing a promise that he had already made to Adam. To Adam, God had promised that a special child would be born who would crush this serpent and that would start the securing of the redemption that we needed. But to to Abraham, God expands further and says that he will give Abraham a special people who will inherit a special place and he will have a special person descend from that race through whom all the nations of the world can be blessed. And then God splits the animals to sign the contract through which he walks himself, securing that God will fulfill his promise. Now, in Genesis 15, God also prophesied that this nation that he would give to Abraham would spend 400 years in slavery in Egypt. We come to Exodus, and at this point, Abraham's promise has been renewed to Isaac and to Jacob and to Joseph. And then, exactly as God said, 400 years later, God raises up Moses. And through Moses, God fulfills that promise, and he brings the people out of Egypt. This is Exodus 1 through Exodus 18. Now in Exodus 19, God comes to Mount Sinai in smoke, in glory, and in lightning, and the people are terrified. They're afraid to go near. They ask Moses to go near so that they don't have to go near. And in Exodus 20, God speaks out loud, giving them what we have called the Ten Commandments, which is what we've looked at recently. Those are then unpacked further in Exodus 20, beginning in verse 19 or 20, all the way through Exodus chapter 23, in case law that fills in the Ten Commandments. That brings us to where we are today, Exodus 24. Here in Exodus 24, they're still at the mountain. 
God is still speaking. But now they have this incredible ceremony to sign the covenant that they have. But I wanted Spencer to read what he read because the covenant comes after promise. Promise of what God will do and what God will secure. So look, look with me, if you would, in God's word. Exodus 24. And we're going to go through verse by verse of this chapter today. And we're going to basically do the sermon in two parts. First, we're going to see the qualities of this covenant in Exodus 24. Then we're going to see why that has bearing on us now. And then at the very end, just a minute or two on why that is such good news for us. Okay, so this is part one, the signing or ratification of the Lord's covenant through Moses, beginning in Exodus 24, verse 1. And this is the Lord speaking. And he said to Moses, come up to the Lord, you and Aaron, Nadab, and Abihu, and the 70 elders of Israel, and worship from, notice, afar. Verse 2, Moses alone shall come near the Lord, but the others shall not come near And the people shall not come up with him. Notice God cannot be approached because of their sinfulness and his holy purity. Moses alone will approach and he'll approach as a mediator as they had asked him to be in chapter 20. This is sort of a preview of the tabernacle, isn't it? The tabernacle, which will be explained in 25 through 40, remember has an outer court that many can come in. But then it has a holy place that only priests can come in. But then it has the most holy place, the holy of holies, in which only the great high priest can come in, and only once a year, and only after a blood offering. So now let's see how they respond. Verse 3. Moses came and told the people all the words of the Lord and all the rules. And all the people answered with one voice and said, All the words that the Lord has spoken we will do. Probably the thing that stands out the most is the word all. Notice how many times it's repeated. All the words, all the rules, all the people said, all the words we will do. Well, this would be the easy point to jab and say, are they kidding themselves? (laughs) Why would they say they're going to keep all the words? Who can keep all the words? But perhaps it's helpful to remember Then in a covenant, it is an all or nothing proposition. You take all or you take none. We still do this in our covenants today. If you're at a wedding ceremony and the traditional vows are given and someone says, will you love him or her in sickness and in health? And they say, I do. And then you say, for richer or poorer. And they say, not that one. You would understand something is wrong. It's an all or nothing proposition. What Moses and the people are doing here is the only thing you can do with a covenant. You can accept it all or you can reject it all. They have chosen to accept it all. It's an all or nothing proposition. Now there's two phrases in the verse that in Hebrew make easier sense, but I'll point them out to us in English. Verse 3 says, all the words... And all the rules, the Devar and the Mishpat, what are those referring to? What are all the words and what are all the rules? We we miss this because in English we call these the Ten Commandments. But did you know they're not called commandments by God? They're called the Ten Words. And then all the case law that follows, God calls the Ten Mishpat, the Ten Judgments. So what is it that they're agreeing to? 
Exodus 20, 21, 22, and 23. That's the content of the covenant. They're saying, we agree to that. The 10 words you gave, which we call the 10 commandments, all the case law you gave, we agree to all of it. We are taking the whole thing. Now verse 4. Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. He rose up early in the morning and built an altar at the foot of the mountain and 12 pillars according to the 12 tribes of Israel. This is important. They've just covenanted. I do. Yes, I do too. But now there's something that needs to be done before that claim can even be approached. I'll read the rest of the verses, but then I'll come back to it more slowly. Let's first read through them. Verse five, he sent young men, probably priests of the people of Israel who offered burnt offerings and sacrificed peace offerings of oxen to the Lord. And Moses took half of the blood and put it in basins and half of the blood he threw against the altar. Then he took the book of the covenant, which is Exodus 20, 21, 22, and 23, the things they just agreed to and read it in the hearing of the people. And they said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do, and we will be obedient. And Moses took the blood and threw it on the people and said, behold, the blood of the covenant that the Lord has made with you in accordance with all these words. Let me go through it a little slower. There's some nuggets here worth drawing out. Verse four, notice that it says Moses wrote down all the words of the Lord. Do you remember that God has been speaking all of these out loud at Mount Sinai? And now they're recorded by Moses. I want you to notice that because I want you to know that this Bible that you have in your hand is the word of God. That is how we have it. Now, I know that God's spirit doesn't always work exactly the same way in the way the recording occurs. But I want you to remember this. As 2 Timothy 3.16 says, all scripture is breathed out by God. And as 2 Peter 1 says, no prophecy has ever come from human interpretation, but men were carried along by the Holy Spirit. Brothers and sisters, rejoice with me this morning that what we are holding is God speaking, recorded for us. So here now Moses has simply recorded what God has said, which is why we have such confidence in the Bible. Now I want you to notice in verse six, a ceremony that is so intriguing Here, blood is split into two halves. Half of it is put in bowls or basins, which we know is about to be sprinkled on the people who are representing the nation on the top of the mountain. The other half is being put on the altar. First, I want you to visualize it. Then I'll try to explain what's happening. If you were among the 70 elders and blood was sprinkled on you, as Moses threw it on you, you would remember that. You would probably have blood on your skin for days. And you would have blood stains on that clothing as long as you had that clothing. There's no Dawn. There's no OxyClean. So this would be a memorable thing. Throughout the entirety of your life, you would know blood has covered me. Now, with that in mind, I want to explain what's happening in this ceremony that seems strange and weird to us today. If you're a note taker, I'm going to give you three explanations of what's happening with blood half on the altar and blood half on the people. Here are the three things that I believe it's doing. Number one, a blood covenant shows this is a matter of life or death. Have you ever heard the phrase, well, it's not like I sign my name in blood. 
And by that we mean it wasn't a life or death thing. We understand there's a continuum between signing in pencil or pen or blood. Philip Ryken writes, The blood shows that the covenant is a matter of life or death. In the ancient world, the blood of the animals and the animals being split was a way to symbolize what would happen to either party if they failed to keep their promise. He continues, When the people made a covenant, the parties passed between the animals as a way of saying, If we fail to keep the covenant, may we be torn just as these animals have been slain. So first... The blood shows this is a serious promise. But second, the blood shows that it's a promise between two parties. That's why the blood goes half on the people and half on the altar. The altar representing Yahweh, the people being the other party. Have you ever been at a wedding where they did a unity candle? One person, the groom, the other person, the bride, they each have their own individual candles. But when they bring the candles together and unite them over one wick, what was once separate is now joined. This is the idea. This is one blood uniting two parties. But the third thing that this ceremony shows, half blood on the people and half blood to represent the Lord, is perhaps the most important It shows that the Lord has entered into this covenant with them through grace on the basis of a substitute who will die in their place. Now, this one's really important. Sometimes we get the idea that in the Old Testament, God was angry and mean. And in the Old Testament, God gave laws that were unfair. But remember, this covenant is being joined not by their own blood, even though they are the ones guilty, but by the blood of a sacrificial substitute that God in grace is counting as atoning for them through faith. So actually, this shows us the gospel. For me to live as a sinner, something must die in my place. And this covenant happens through a substitute dying in their place and that blood covering them. Jim Hamilton writes this. Judgment falls on the sacrificial animal in place of the people. Just as blood covered the doorpost on the night of the Passover, blood covers those entering into covenant with Yahweh on Mount Sinai. The sacrificial victim is slain, their penalty is paid, and they are covered by the blood of a substitute. Now, if when they said, we will obey all that the Lord says, you were thinking, you are in some serious trouble. You're not going to obey all that the Lord says. But that's exactly why the blood is shed. God knows they're professing beyond their strength. They can only have access with him through the blood that has forgiven them and maintains peace with them and is available for them. So I want to go further because I've found over the years that many people have a view of God that he is not good or that at least in the Old Testament he was not good, that he was unfair and that he had rules that were without grace. I'd like to give you four arguments, even just from today's passage, that show that God is always good. That God always has grace. And that God never gives commands apart from his gracious character. All right, here they are. Here's my first argument. 
Galatians 3 says in verse 17, the law that was given through Moses does not annul the promise that God had previously given through Abraham. Remember, God made the promise and God alone walked through those split animals. And here the law does not annul that promise. It actually furthers the promise God had already made. He's going to bring the people that he had promised to a promised place and God himself will do this. Second, I want to remind us that God gave these commandments after he had redeemed them. So in Exodus 20, the Lord begins by saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt. Therefore, have no other gods before me. And then the commandments continue. As Spencer already read for us, chapter 23 says this is a promise that God is going to fulfill. So these rules, therefore, are not actually intended to be a way to earn relationship with God. But I want to remind you again, can you flip back? I don't have you flip often, but can you flip back to Exodus 19? So flip back maybe five or six pages in your Bible to Exodus 19. Now we might, we might forget that this is all happening at the same time because chapter 20, 21, 22, and 23 are all happening at Mount Sinai. And here's how it begins. So Exodus 19, please look with me in verse 3. While Moses went up to God, the Lord called to him out of the mountain saying, Thus shall you say to the house of Jacob and tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. If you've ever seen Lord of the Rings or read the books, or even if you've read Chronicles of Narnia, you know there are key scenes where the protagonists are carried on eagles' wings, literally. Now, this is a common and important metaphor in the Bible. Think of Isaiah 40. Those who wait upon the Lord will renew their strength, and they will mount up with eagles' wings. And here God is saying, you are where you are because I brought you out. Now, verse 5. Don't miss the word therefore. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall be my treasured possession among all peoples, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. Please catch that God did not say, if you keep my rules, then I will bring you out on eagles' wings. If you obey my laws, then I will bring you to myself. No, he said the exact opposite. I have brought you out on eagle's wings. I have brought you to myself. Therefore, you can experience what it is to live as mine when you follow the good guidance I have given you. There's a world of difference between those. If I said to someone, if you obey my rules, then you can be my child. That's very different from you are my child. Therefore, enjoy it. By living according to our instruction. So note that all that God does is in the basis of grace. I think it's worth quoting Sinclair Ferguson who writes, Legalism begins to manifest when we view God's law as a contract with conditions to be fulfilled rather than implications of a covenant graciously given to us. Understand that God has not made a contract with them. He has made a covenant of grace with them. I think Wellam and Gentry are worth quoting. They write, a lot of misunderstanding has been caused by contrasting the old covenant in terms of law with the new covenant, which we just call grace. 
But this text is clear. The old covenant is based upon grace, and grace motivates the keeping of that covenant just as we find in the new. God has actually never approached anybody apart from grace. Through grace, God comes to us. And Paul makes this argument in Romans 9 when he says that the nation of Israel wrongly thought that they could approach the law apart from faith. In chapter 10, he says they have zeal, but it is without knowledge. They've tried to establish a righteousness of their own rather than the righteousness that comes through faith. So this morning, know that legalism is as old as separating the law of God from the character of God. But God's commands come from his gracious heart. So don't forget his goodness. And it is misleading to think of the old covenant as law without grace and the new one as grace without law. No, they're all grace with gracious commands. So now return to verse 9 in the text. Then Moses and Aaron, Nadab and Abihu, and 70 of the elders of Israel went up, and they saw the God of Israel. There was under his feet, as it were, a pavement of sapphire stone, like the very heaven for clearness. And he did not lay his hand on the chief men of the people of Israel. They beheld God and ate and drank. How can this be? In Exodus 33, verse 20, God says to Moses, no one may see me and live. In John, we read, no one has seen the Father at any time because you cannot see God and live. So how did these men see God? Well, first notice, they were looking down. (laughs) This is the appropriate approach to God is in bowed worship. And so what they behold, we see in verse 10, is underneath his feet. And yet, I must admit, Verse 11 does stress the fact that God did not lay his hand on them. They were not killed. So they must have seen something. And verse 11 says, they beheld God and ate and drank. Well, I read a lot of scholars this week who fell all over the map on trying to answer this perplexing puzzle. And I'm not sure that I can solve it for you either. But if I could give my humble submission, here's what it would be. Let's remember in context why they are able to come near God at this moment? And the answer is through the blood. I believe on that basis it makes the best sense of how they could see any portion of God for however short a time without experiencing death. Now verse 12. The Lord said to Moses, Come up to me. On the mountain and wait there, that I may give you the tablets of stone with the law and the commandment, notice, which I have written for their instruction. Actually, in Exodus 31, verse 18, we read that the tablets were written with the finger of God. So the Ten Commandments were written actually by God Himself. Now, verse 13. So Moses rose with his assistant Joshua, and Moses went up into the mountain of God, and he said to the elders, Wait here for us as we return to you. And behold, Aaron and Hur are with you. Whoever has a dispute, let him go to them. If you've been carefully following Exodus, you might remember in chapter 17, remember, Moses holds up the staff, and whenever his hands are in the air, they succeed in battle. Joshua is fighting in the battle, but do you remember who's holding his hands up? 
It's Aaron and her. But notice now Joshua goes with Moses and Aaron and her are now down below delegating. So there's been a change here. Joshua has moved into a position of greater leadership. So we're less surprised in the subsequent chapters that he succeeds Moses. Verse 15, then Moses went up on the mountain and the cloud covered the mountain. The glory of the Lord dwelt on Mount Sinai and the cloud covered it six days. And on the seventh day, he called to Moses out of the midst of the cloud. Now the appearance of the glory of the Lord was like a devouring fire on top of the mountain in the sight of the people of Israel. Hebrews twelve twenty nine says, our God is a consuming fire. But where did we first see God as fire? And the answer is Exodus 3 at the burning bush. Note this about the fire of God. The amazing thing about the fire of God is that he did not need the wood of the bush to continue to burn. See, God is self-existent. God is not dependent on anything else. He is the only creator that needs nothing created. Anything we make, we have to mix elements and they consume and destroy the elements. But the Lord is self-existent, self-sufficient, eternal, unchangeable, I am. And so his fire burns without the need of anything to fuel it. Verse 18, Moses entered the cloud. Can you imagine the trepidation with which he would walk forward by himself? Went up onto the mountain and Moses was on the mountain 40 days and 40 nights. Well, now we're about to transition to part two of the sermon What does all this mean for us now? Well, let me first point out that, to be fair, here we are listening in on a conversation that does not directly involve us. We're not one of the two parties. We're not the people of Israel with blood put on our garments. And yet we see principles when we come to the New Testament. Romans 9, Paul says, not all Israel was even Israel in verse 6, meaning not all the Israelites even put faith in the blood, but instead tried to put faith in their works. But then Paul in 2 Corinthians 3, and then the author of Hebrews in chapters 8, 9, and 10 comes along and explains what we see in the furnishings of this old covenant are so important for us to appreciate when the light is turned on in the coming of Christ in the new. What God does in Exodus 24 is glorious and is good. What God does, though, for us in his son is incomparably better. I want to make sure we understand, though, that they're both good, but one is incomparably better than the other. Here's how I would illustrate this. Forgive me. It's a little sappy, but but I'm going <laughs> to let's go with it. My life before Stephanie truly was good. I had a lot of fun in high school perhaps too much fun in high school, but I enjoyed it. We had a great time. I had many wonderful experiences. We won state championships in sports. Those were great years. But then I met Stephanie in college. Our senior year, we began dating. And now when I look back over life, and many of you who are married will understand this, you can't remember life when you weren't married. I only now think of life through the lens of life with her. The years before were good. The years with her are incomparably better. What the Bible explains about what God did through Moses is that it's good. But now God has sent his perfect mediator. And what we have through him is truly incomparably better. 
But what we saw here helps us understand better what Jesus did. We saw here in Exodus 24 that there was only one mediator that God allowed to his closest intimacy. That was Moses. But today we know the ultimate mediator has come. And there's only one way to approach God, 1 Timothy 2.5. There is one God and there's one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. Now here's what I want you to catch. We can approach God, but only through Jesus Christ. In this passage, we see that to come to the mountain, to the presence of God, was a terrifying thing. Was something that could only be done for one. And only could be done through the blood. Here's why I want to stress that to us. I fear that we have softened how desperately we need the blood. And I fear that we have softened how holy and unapproachable God is. I'll give you an example. This week, we had this conversation in our car on the way home because we were somewhere that someone got up and said, you know, God loves us just the way we are. I want to make sure that I explain to you. I have good news for you. God does not love us just the way we are. Praise God. He loves us much better than that. God loves us despite the way we are. Let me explain. If God loved us just the way we are, John 3.16 would say this, for God so loved the world that he left it just the way it was and we all perished. And Romans 5.8 would say, God demonstrated his love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, God left us just the way we were. No, brothers and sisters, I have good news. God does not love us just the way we are. If God loved us just the way we are, he would love us based on our own worthiness. God loves us despite the way we are. That's why John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he sent his only son so that his son would die so that we would not perish through faith in his son. That's why Romans 5.8 says, While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So we do not come just the way we are. We are saved despite the way we are, and the blood alone is what gives us access to our holy God. This is why Jesus Christ, who is the only mediator, explains at the Lord's Supper, this is the blood of the covenant which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now here's what's amazing about what Jesus says. Remember Moses? He had to split the blood of an animal into two locations. But Jesus offers not blood of something else, but offers his own blood. And it is not shed on two locations because God and man have met in him. See, Jesus on the cross does what all the sacrifices pointed to. He covers our sin at his own life. He's the lamb who dies so that we never have to. And his sacrifice is sufficient. Hebrews 9 actually walks through Exodus 24 and talks about how Moses sprinkled blood on the people. And then Hebrews says, but blood had to be sprinkled on everything over and over and over. For without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sins. But then it says Jesus died once for all and is seated at the right hand of God. Did you know Jesus paid it all? There's nothing else to add. This is why on the cross Jesus could say, It is finished. 
Perhaps the most warm moment of Exodus 24 is when they eat a meal with God. But remember, Jesus throughout his life presents himself as the meal. This is my body. Take, eat. This is my blood. Take, drink. I'm the bread of life. I'm the cup of water. I think one of the most touching moments in the Gospels is after Jesus has risen from the dead, the disciples are on the seashore. And in John 21, Jesus comes to them and says, come and have breakfast. And they knew it was the Lord. And he broke bread and gave it to them. And they enjoyed a meal with him. Scripture constantly talks about the intimacy of having a meal with God. Think of Abraham who hosts divine messengers and has a meal with them. Think of the 23rd Psalm where David says, You prepare a table for me in the presence of my enemies. Or Isaiah 25 that promises a future banquet. But then Jesus says this, Many will come from the east and the west and will take their place at the feast with Abraham with Isaac and Jacob in the kingdom of heaven. There's a wedding invitation going out to us and the RSVP is faith in Jesus Christ. But Moses, notice, went on Mount Sinai for 40 days and 40 nights. Do you know what happened when he came down? He found the people of Israel worshiping a golden calf. Moses broke the stones and went right back up. And Moses is going up and down and up and down. Jesus came down once, went to Mount Calvary once. And there, because of his crucifixion, we can dwell in God's glory forever. Not with veiled face, Not for a temporary 40-night stay, but for the permanency that the Bible says in Revelation 21, Behold, the dwelling place of God is with man. They will see his face. Now we see in a mirror dimly, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 13, but then we will see him face to face. So what does all of this detail mean? Here God in his infinite wisdom has recorded incredible detail about Exodus 24 all the way through to Jesus, all the way culminated in the book of Revelation. What does that mean for you and I today? I believe it means this. This morning, if you come to Jesus, who will love you despite the way you are, if you will cling to him as a sinner and find him as your Savior, You will today experience rest. You will not spend your life asking, am I doing enough? Have I advanced enough? Has my good outweighed my bad? No, Jesus paid it all. His blood is sufficient. Secondly, you'll experience peace. Perhaps even as a Christian today, you've been thinking, man, I still remember all my failures. I still remember all my shortcomings. Let me remind you, brother, sister. Romans 5 says, We therefore have peace with God because we have been justified by his blood. But also it means we have hope. If God died for me, despite the fact that I am a sinner, when I was my worst Jesus came to wash and clean and sanctify me. That means that my future can only get better. What's ahead of me is only better than what I've experienced 
And just like Moses and a select few beheld and ate with God, so the entire family of God has a meal awaiting us where the Lord himself will dine with us and we will be his people. This morning, I want you to remember, maybe as a Christian, you need to remember this. Maybe today you need to put your faith in this. There's rest and there is peace and there is hope because Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Let's pray together this morning. God, this morning, if anyone in this room is still trying to be good enough, help them to see the blood that was put on the altar and the blood that was put on the people because we know that we need to be washed and frankly, we know we will sin again. So I thank you, Lord, that there is a sacrifice who takes away the sin of the world, past, present, and future. Thank you that Jesus is a Savior to the uttermost. Maybe someone needs to call on him today and say, Lord, will you please forgive me? I trust in Jesus today, Lord. I, I don't even know that I have everything understood in my heart and mind, but I know I need the Lord who will love me despite the way I am and who will wash me and clean me and make me his own. Help them to call on Jesus and just trust in him in their heart to give all of themselves in covenant to him who breaks no promise. But as believers, Lord, we can start looking to the wrong place. And we can start thinking that my performance must be what keeps me here. But help us to see that there is only hope in the blood of the Lamb. So God, thank you that Jesus Christ is a sufficient Savior and that he has offered himself as our eternal and everlasting hope in covenant through, through faith. In his name I pray, amen. You've been listening to Josh Scally, pastor of Emmanuel Baptist Church in Raleigh, North Carolina. For more information and free access to other messages, go to ebcraleigh.com. That's e-b-c-r-a-l-e-i-g-h dot com.